CMO panel. And so what's interesting and I've noticed, especially the last few years, we're gonna start this off with, um, I think I'm assuming everyone, the problem everyone struggles with, which is pretty much every segment is noisy these days, right? Every segment, just there's more companies, there's more marketing, there's more messages, everything's busy, everything's noisy, everyone's distracted. So when you are in charge of marketing and whether, whether there's any co direct competitors or not, uh, what I find is, I don't know, say in the payment space, you might have something new, but there's so many other companies talking about payments. How do you stand out from the noise? What's, you know, a tip or a learning or a, something you failed at in terms of breaking out from the crowd, not whether it's dir against direct competitors or just everyone talking all the noise in your space? Chatra, you want to start here at the far left? Sure. So um, one of the big things that we focus on at Recharge, and so as uh, Peter mentioned, we only work with Shopify merchants right now. We do recurring billing, so we focus on subscriptions for physical goods, so a little bit different from a SaaS recurring billing. Uh, for us, it's understanding our positioning in the market. So while there are several solutions, um, we stand out for what we focus on on the product side of things. So um, whereas certain other products are focused on you know, one-to-many, um, we focused on a bit more of the enterprise. So understanding our position in the marketplace, that for our product, we're focusing on you know, being able to customize how you offer subscriptions to the end user. Um, how can we work with uh, technology or the developers at different agencies that we partner with on how to actually work with them in tandem to build a subscription experience for the merchants they're working with. So really for us, it's just being heads down, not being distracted by the competition, understanding our positioning in the market, and, and not diverting from that. Yep, and by the way, if you didn't know, her CEO or founder is a hyper-competitive person who's always uh, constantly comparing themselves to all the competitors. <laughs> Chachri, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? Chachri, Chachri. So. Be careful, he's in the audience today. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, Julie. Yeah, sure. So this is kind of my third venture with the company where we're kind of the number two vendor or you know, the number five vendor. And there's always kind of that big uh, behemoth company that we uh, were competing with. Um, at Chrome River, it's an $8 billion company owned by SAP. I won't name any names. But, you know, we need to be very clever in how we're going to market. We need to message to what the buyer is really looking for. We need to look at our unique reasons that people are buying Chrome River. And, you know, that means we need to understand what makes the customers excited to work with us. And what we've seen is we provide a superior digital experience, a better user experience overall, um, from working with our services teams, our products, you know, themselves, the capabilities, and then really being able to message to that and, and be very articulate about it. And then I think from the marketing spend perspective is, again, the, the cleverness. You know, we, we do not have the 50 times uh, budget that, that our competitor has. And so we have to be very precise and targeted uh, who we're going after. We're an enterprise software company, so we, we know who our uh, ideal customer profile buyer is. We know the accounts that would be ideal for, for Chrome River. And so just like they talk about in account-based marketing is we go after, instead of with a net, uh, we go after with a spear. And what that means is we're flanking accounts that we know would be great Chrome River customers from all angles. We're working it from the partner perspective. We're working it from the marketing perspective. We make sure we're speaking to the, all the different personas that could be involved in the buying decision. 
and you know, really building on that brand message and articulating that differentiation. Okay, great. Uh, Terry. A man who's been around too long. <laughs> I think I have. Uh, I'm I getting think, there. I think the, uh, the thing to, to build, build on what's been said is not only understanding your position in the market, but understand the mindset of your, of your prospect. And in, in our particular case at Patient Pop, it's understanding that when a doctor is leaning in to, to do research or to, to look at, at how they can improve their business, they're really seeking to solve a problem. They're not looking at it in terms of, I need a technology solution, I need this piece of software, I need that. I need to solve a problem. I need more patients in my waiting room. That's their mindset. And the other thing in understanding your, your prospect is they don't teach marketing in medical school. So they don't understand buzzwords that we take for granted. We talk about many terms in, in online search as, you know, Leads. as second nature. So they don't know what SEO is. They don't know why social matters. They're, they're just beginning to understand why reputation matters. So we tend to speak in terms of selling the problem and that lends itself to selling the solution. By the way, if you check out the Patient Pop website, it's just very obvious. Um, so here's an example, because I think if you, for Chatri and Julie, what they're saying is basically know your customer, like who your best customer is, the specifics about what they care about, and be able to really speak to that. Okay, what does that mean, right? That's easy to say. So uh, in the Patient Pop example, right, doctors need, Patients, sorry. In their, in their lingo, they need patients, not customers. And saying at a high level, oh, doctor, do you need patients? It's a little too vague, but if you say doctor, you know, if you improve your website, if you know you need to improve your website in order to get patients, it's something that resonates. It's easier for them to be like, ah, I get it. So it's sort of this next level of, I don't know, it, by the way, in the expense world, it's talk about crowded. I don't know how many vendors are in. Expense management, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crowded space. Yeah. <laughs> Up so and it's down, not market. expense management. Like, what's one of the specific? So you think about it this way: there's the company, but there's the one person at the company that you're talking to. So um, maybe just an example: what's one of the? Who's a? What's a buyer? What, what title? In, you know, it's interesting because in the expense space, and we also do invoice automation, so that it, there's some overlap there in terms of the buyer persona, but clearly the finance team is going to be the buyer, so that could be the controller, the AP manager, and then even up to the CFO or VP of finance. Okay. So actually, point. let's pick one other controller, just to give yeah. people an example of what this means. What's a thing a controller really struggles with that would only, that they would, because the problem of a controller is different yeah. than the problem of the C CFO? Control and visibility. Control, okay. controller. They need to control where the spend is going. Are they compliant? Do they have visibility on where they're spending? And then another uh, one thing to mention, also an interesting persona, is the travel manager. I mean, talk about a different type yeah. of persona. What makes them tick? So it's you know it becomes very creative in how you're messaging to to those different buyers. Yeah. So it's not just at the company level. Each different person and understanding what their different problems are. And I find uh, you know, we suggest hey do more interviews is is a great way to get some more insight there. So. All right, trying to take some of the suggestions and make them more practical. But now, now speaking of, okay, you're trying to stand out from the noise. Um, you're like, hey, let's, we know who our people are. We're going to do some marketing. What do you see is the best channel performing for you these days? Or is there not just one? Uh, let's start from this side. Back. You know, it's a conversation that we have every day. 
most of the conversation revolves around let's find that one thing that will solve all of our problems. And Yeah, the uh, silver bullet, right? Yeah, it's that. silver bullets and unicorns are, are the things that yeah, you really that try to avoid. Facts. And as a, you know, as a marketing guy, you know, you get 10 suggestions a day from everybody who's got that brilliant idea, and if only you were bright enough to understand what a genius they are. are you, you... Have you started a podcast yet? <laughs> Not yet, but uh, oh, okay. we can have that conversation. Um, the... The, the reality is it's not one thing you do, it's everything you do. And you have to be willing to take calculated risks. You have to be able to understand what's working. Um, most of the time where marketing people succeed is they understand cause and effect in a cohorted manner. Where they tend to fail is they are experimenting without the infrastructure to understand what's happening. So the investment in building the systems, processes, and capabilities to realize what the effect of your spend and your team's effort is, is as or more critical than any particular tactical thing that you're trying to achieve. Without that, you're going to fail for sure. Okay, yeah, so where this shows up a lot is when um, often executive, CEO, or board is saying, like, we need results right now. You feel like maybe you get them, but you push so hard that you don't understand where you really they came from. So it's sort of that term. Yeah. Uh, the only thing worse than, than failing and not knowing why is succeeding and not knowing why. Yeah, and then you can't replicate it. Right. Now. And if, if you succeed, because a lot of times you don't. Uh, that uh, it's hard. It takes time to measure those things. It's, yeah. it's a lot of work. So Julie, what's working best for you? Yeah, you know, I, I agree with Terry across the board on everything you said. You know, you have to be very data-driven. You have to understand what's driving, you know, ultimately the bookings and the revenue. But I do like to carve out kind of 5 to 10% of, I would say, test budget. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and I think it's, well, you know, it's kind of a good idea sometimes to try different things. And there's so many new competitors, as Aaron was saying, coming into our market all the time on the travel space, on the expense space, um, that we, we need to try different things. And, and but, you know, that said, we, uh, we look at the ROI of each program. We use Salesforce to do that, um, you know, through the campaign function and really get down to what are the top five uh, programs that we spend on that consistently return investment on yeah. both and which you know, pipeline the top and, and booking. couple for you these days are what? Yeah, so we, you know, there, there's a couple. So I'm in the enterprise software space. So for us, really good data matters, making sure you have all your, you know, ideal account profiles in, you know, account shells in Salesforce, making sure that you got... more like, is it webinars? I mean, I know yeah. there's a bunch, but... Yeah, I mean, the fundamentals are getting the accounts. And from those accounts, what you can do is you can email market, you can call into the accounts with a BDR team, which is a team that I manage. That has a great return on investment. If you have good data, you know, great return. Um, and then online marketing. I mean, that's been consistently a good return for us, having really good content out there that is meaningful and that people uh, resonate with and that they see Chrome over as a trusted advisor and really a partner to them. If that is meaningful, valuable content, that, that drives a lot of inbound yep. for us. So wait, email marketing for you? Email, outbound inbound, outbound prospecting with the telemarketing uh, BDR content. team. Yep. Okay, and then I would say well, there's one last one, which is, which is Gartner. 
um, you know, for the, you know, sometimes people will say it's a pay-for-play situation. I, yes. I tend to think it's not uh, as much as other analyst firms. I think Gartner is, is very <laughs> that's, solid. That's a ringing endorsement. Yeah. Um, no, they, you know, consistently over the years, and, I'm, you know, you do pay a, a client fee, but if you have visibility with their analysts and they're talking to, you know, the Liberty Mutuals, the Grant Thorntons, the Anthems, which are some accounts that we, we have, um, that is worth its weight in gold. So it's worth the check to Gartner, yes. Yeah. Yep, can be. So we're in a unique situation whereby we work a lot hand-in-hand -hand with Shopify. So Shopify, for those who don't know, has an app store. Uh, we're one of the billing solutions that's included there. So really, I look at that as our storefront um, for how the majority of the stores find us. In addition, we work, as I said, a lot with enterprise brands, so very large e-commerce brands who are thinking about subscription they're not really coming to us from the Shopify app store. They're coming to us either through a partner agency or a developer agency and kind of coming to us with like their complex questions. So in terms of channel, um, it's really honing on, on those folks, so those partner agencies. We've found a lot of success with offline. So whereas there's a lot of email marketing out there, there's a lot of display ads, what we found a lot of success with for the enterprise side of things is being where our targets are offline. So that could be e-commerce e conferences, it could be a Shopify conference, um, where we're following where Shopify is, because that's really our ecosystem. So we are where our partners are. Yep. Um, okay, great. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna ask you some individual questions here. In fact, uh, because you mentioned that agencies have been very successful for you as a key channel. Mm -hmm. So by the way, I'm gonna do, there's gonna be a couple questions. One's gonna be throw you a little off guard because it's gonna be not related to marketing, right? But, so let's just do that one first. Um, first one, just be just curious. Do you have any uh, personal like hobbies or vices or fun activities? Before I want to get to that before we make sure we don't run out of time. Okay, hobbies. I'm really into sports, so yeah. I'm a huge USC football fan for the Trojans in the audience. Um, and then yoga. So I'm actually a yoga club member for Brent Freeman, who's in the house. Okay, great. Yep. So now back to the question would be, now agencies are hard to work with, hard to get started with, right? And a lot of companies aren't successful with it. For you, what do you think was the key to getting the first agencies off the ground to make it a successful channel for you? Yeah, so when it comes to our product, for back in the early days, our co-founders both got on the phone with the early users of, of the product. And then when it came to folks who were emailing in, we saw that many of them were developers. And so what we ended up doing is just getting on the phone with them because they're building a subscription experience on behalf of the merchants that they were working with. So definitely just connecting with them from day one. So just again, going back to uh, Stealth Venture Labs, we've been working with them for over two years um, and working with them for over five different subscription brands like Yoga Club, like Short Par 4, which is a uh, golf apparel of the month. And so for them, it's a perfect example. Um, you know, Brent and myself and the co-founder, we're on a text level basis at this point. So I would just say building that relationship. So calling everybody, um, meeting up with them on a quarterly basis, educating them about what's new with the platform. We're constantly building new features. So sitting that with them, either doing a webinar or a one-to-one -one lunch and learn, that's been really successful for being, um, having them be the advocates for recharge to the end user. So, so uh, you know, seeing some interest, building relationships, mm -hmm. right? 
relationships. And do you remember how long that sort of took? It takes time. A couple yeah. of years, a few months. Yeah. Our partner program has grown in the last two years from, I mean, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but we've spent a lot of time just honing in, uh, spending a lot of man hours managing like, those relationships. If I don't know exactly actually when you started Recharge, but for sure. example, from the time that you actually start trying to work partners, <coughs> mm -hmm. it seems like it can be a couple of years to actually start to see a return. So I don't oh, know if 100%. that was... It's, it's a long yeah, okay. game, for Tough. sure. I mean, we've, we, we had one par particular partner from San Diego. You know, we did a lunch and learn at their, their office in San Diego. We, we've seen them at events. You know, we really only worked with them on an enterprise client maybe nine months later. So it's, you know, at, at times it can seem like you're putting a lot of effort that goes um, unmaterialized. But then, you know, nine, ten months later, that's when you kind of see the return. So I would, I would recommend anyone who's thinking about having a partnerships program Definitely understanding it's, an, it's a long-term investment. Yeah, it's it, it, it just a couple of years just seems to be pretty fair. Pretty standard time frame. Yep. So Julie, question for you. Um, so I know that uh, when you're targeting enterprise, and again, especially in a crowded space, having a clear, consistent message that people use across again marketing content, be prospectors, right, BDRs when they're emailing and calling to companies. Um, how do you? It's easy to say, hey, we need to have some kind of clear brand message or brand promise, but how do you, what's, how do you actually come up with one in the first place that's usable? Because people fall down, I think it's hard to come up with one that's simple enough to use and then actually to use it. So what's, what have you learned through this? Absolutely, yeah. So coming it sounds great in theory. What was that? It sounds great in theory. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. It's, and, and one thing I hear a lot, well, that, that's brand, oh, that's a marketing thing. And, you know, marketing does shepherd and help bring in the brand and making sure that it's a consistent delivery across the organization. But brand is developed through many, many facets. So it's, you know, when I came to Chrome River, what the first thing I did is I brought together the executive team. I spoke to customers. I spoke with the sales team. I spoke with analysts. And I did bring in a third-party um, firm, Lazador Dundorf, a, a boutique firm in L.A., who brought in the team and was able to be that kind of third-party objective uh, party, um, which for me was important because, I, again, I didn't want to come in and say, hey, I'm CMO, and this is what our brand's going to look like because I didn't feel I'd get the adoption that we would need. And again, it comes about organically. You know what the DNA of your company is, and hopefully you know what your culture is and your mission and your vision, and all of that goes into to building the brand. And then from that, I'm a big fan of threes, the power of three. I think it's great to distill down the brand message into kind of three positions, three power positions, or three kind of concepts that a BDR or a sales team member can very readily cite. Um, if they have a quick, you know, elevator pitch or they have a phone call um, when you're at a trade show in an email campaign that you continue to reinforce that brand message because if you're not reinforcing it, you're diluting it. And so that's incredibly important to hone in on that and build it into everything you do and then have your partners speaking the brand message, having even your customers um, speaking that brand message. And then that becomes a very powerful thing for your company and can be very differentiating. What's uh, Chrome Rivers? Yeah, so what was kind of fun uh, two and a half years ago when I came on board is we had a brand that was, it, it was interesting, we also had a disconnect with who we were selling to. So we were selling to mid to large global organizations, but we had a tagline that was very tactical, and our brand image, our imagery on our site, et cetera, looked more like a startup. So it was about kind of up-leveling that message 
And we also wanted to incorporate the river theme, right? So we're Chrome River. And so we wanted something with a little bit longer runway. And we did change the tagline tag to let business flow. Uh, we know that expense management is not solving world peace. But uh, we wanted to, to show that we can help organizations focus on the things that are critical and not have to worry about expense management as a, as a time suck for their, for, their, for their team members. And so we changed that tagline and then we built into that uh, concept also some fun things like Take Me to the River, which are some of the more fun marketing campaigns. Um, and then the imagery was much more up-leveled to, to focus on you know, the larger enterprise and global, global customer. And so that's how we kind of executed on it. I still it. think we, you should have picked my tagline. Which is? If you do it right, or work with us, and it stops being a pain in your ass. <laughs> That's no? an option. Okay. <laughs> All right, that was my shot. Okay. Uh, Terry, so for you, question. Oh, I'm sorry, Julie. Yeah. Secret, secret hobby, fun vice, personal fun fact. Nowadays, it's work and family, but I, I'm a big cinephile, so I was chatting with a gentleman last night, and... Um, we were chatting about movies, and that's one of my passions. I actually worked in the movie industry about 20 years ago, so it's, it's still a personal passion. Yeah. Cinephile. Yeah, my 15-year-old uh, daughter, definitely a cinephile. Love, if she would watch movies 25 hours a day, if she could actually humanly do it, or if we let her, which we don't. So, uh, okay, let's start with a fun fact, so I don't forget that. Fun fact, by the way, Mine, for example, people are always surprised if you don't know I have nine children. Um, eight at home, one out. So that's you always. You have far too much energy for a guy with nine children, I can tell. <laughs> yes. Uh, you just get used to it. I'm not actually awake right now, I'm just pretending to be. So, and the, there was, we have a, one, the youngest is one year old, so she's still, some, and she has, you know, every, who has kids here? Or, yeah, okay, so you know when there's like something going on, you're like, I don't know why she itches at night. We have no idea why. No one knows. It's either going to go away on its own or not. You just like, you just, there's nothing you can do except wake up in the night and take care of it and go back to sleep if you can. It's the fun of parenting. But um, fun fact for Terry. Fun fact. Uh, or strange. It's okay. Well, uh, I think they're, it's kind of a combination. Um, oh, even better. Well, I, I, I ran global marketing for the F-16, the F-22, and the F-35 way back That's in cool. my life. Yeah. So I know far more about military aircraft around the world than I would ever have wanted to. So, uh, yeah. Is that marketing it to other countries? Well, you know, uh, ironically... Marketing uh, it to who, I guess? Well, Congress? It, now that you mention it, let me tell you. Um, if you really want to know, there's actually 49 countries on the planet that the U.S. can sell military hardware to. And in these 49 countries, there's anywhere between 8 and 10 people that really matter, from the Prime Minister to the Minister of Defense, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and so on. So talk about targeted marketing, right? There are actually 500 people on planet Earth that you care about. The rest of them, you don't care. So... That's true, yeah. You were like the original prospector. That's right. It's it extremely easy to create a database, extraordinarily difficult to penetrate. So there you go. <laughs> I'll have to get some tips from you later on, new, on prospecting techniques that might have been old back then, but you maybe know, it's time to bring them back. The, the like, fundamentals, the blocking and tackling, it doesn't change. It never changes, yeah. In fact, someone on my team said that he'd, you know, his father had, was familiar with uh, an old Roman um, centurion army manual. And the same people issues they dealt with back 3,000 years ago were the same ones today. I know, surprising, surprising. 
Uh, okay, so your question. Wait, I'm going to jump in. I'm gonna... Peter. Let's, uh, let's, let's have time for just a couple of questions. Okay. Please open the audience, ask the question. All right, let's do that. So we're going to open for questions. All right, here, 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 sir. sir. Uh, curious, as much as an early stage, um, how it started to think about how it came in that budget toward marketing. Uh, say, 250K revenue in your first year, how much are you pouring into marketing? Okay, so the question was, if you're a startup, you say have 250K in revenue, how do you decide on a budget? How do you allocate a marketing budget? I actually have no idea, so not that the question Well, as a marketing right. guy, I would say all of it. Um. <laughs> Well, you raise $2 million first. And have a heck of a party, but yeah. uh, no, the, the, the fact of the matter is when, when you're trying to look at a budget, demand generation is really what people care about. And you can be leads. in any... Leads. How many leads? That's the only question in any board meeting you, that anybody cares about. So when you're looking at, at how much to spend, it runs counterintuitive to people who don't understand how demand generation really works. They think that the more leads you generate, the cost should go down. It's exactly the opposite. If you're harvesting low-hanging fruit, and everybody's familiar with that concept, okay, so that might be 20, 25% of your number. How do you get the other 75%? You gotta go further up the Spend tree. Spend more. You got, well, further up the tree and it costs more. You gotta go further out in the limb. It's more risky. So look at your spend as it relates to the number of leads, as those leads relate to your entire addressable market. The more percentage of your addressable market that you need to generate as prospects into your funnel, you can expect those costs to accelerate somewhat exponentially. Another answer would be, you just gotta pick a number if you don't know. Yeah. It's sort of like going to Vegas, right? If I go, I say, all right, two, I can afford to lose $200. Or, you know, you just got to pick a number. You know, it's that learning. They said testing before, you know. I have one more question. Okay. Yes, sir. Built fire. Build fire. And so from a marketing standpoint, like, how do you bridge that gap? I mean, I know there's a lot. Okay, the question is, is he, they're going from build to fire. It's going from B to, mostly B to C little to B to B. What in marketing do you do to help bridge that gap? I mean, I would, I would start off by saying who's actually, if you are kind of, let's say, getting those leads in, who from your team is actually talking to them? So one of the things that we've found is that um, in the early days, we were getting emails from some of the, the largest brands in the states, and they were entering the same support email queue as everybody else. So what we had to do is stop and think about, okay, who from our team is going to handle those conversations versus just like a normal support question? Um, and so I would say resource-wise, who's going to actually talk to those enterprise brands? What is kind of the sales process for that? You know, do you have a structure in place for maybe having a, a longer demo for how the product works. Also, one of the things that we focused on was, um, speaking of the brand message, our entire website. We did an entire overhaul to go from just being kind of a, an app in the app store to now we're a platform. Um, and so the messaging around that really attracted the type of enterprise clients that we more and more started to work with over the years. So I would say on a sales side, figuring out which resources you're gonna to allocate toward the, towards those leads. And then from um, just a branding standpoint, 
how are you going to shift what you have right now to actually kind of, um, kind of screen that enterprise message. Yeah, plus, by the way, read the f from impossible to inevitable. I can't even say it. From impossible to inevitable. From impossible.com. That will be the best 20 bucks you spend, period. Thank According you. to many other people. Uh, well, and then one last thing is just make sure one person's in charge of it, right? Because if, if there's not one person, it's not going to happen. So, all right, I'm going to thank and turn back over to your Peter.